We'll hear argument next to number 946790, Harvey Garlot versus Kirk Fordyce. Mr. Boyle. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Petitioner Harvey Garlett has been confined uh, in Mississippi since 1985 under a consecutive term of three years imprisonment and uh, two follow-on concurrent life terms. In this, uh, in this habeas action, Mr. Garlett challenges the conviction that resulted in the three-year term, and the question in the case is whether Mississippi's treatment of all of Mr. Garlett's consecutive sentences as a single, essentially general sentence for penological purposes means that Mr. Garlett was in custody uh, for purpose of habeas corpus when he began this action in 1989. What, what do you mean by saying uh, the Mississippi treated it as kind of a, uh, a generic sentence or something like that? I, I didn't catch your exact phrasing, but I gather it's something of importance to your argument. Well, uh, we argue, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, that Mississippi essentially uh, aggregates or treats as unitary a series of consecutive sentences. And by that I mean uh, the prisoner is assigned a, a single uh, date of parole eligibility, uh, which turns on the total period of confinement, not on the individual sentences. Uh, the order in which those sentences have been prescribed is irrelevant to the prisoner's release date. And such penological uh, functions as calculating earned time, calculating good time, uh, those, those functions are made on the basis of the total term of confinement. So I analogize consecutive sentences to uh, a general sentence for multiple convictions. And what is a general sentence? Is general that, sentence. That's simply a single sentence? Your Honor, a, a general sentence of common law was a single term of confinement for convictions upon multiple counts. Uh, raised to, to Which many is what you didn't have here. There, there were consecutive sentences. That, that's you correct, you say Missouri, Mississippi treats consecutive sentences much like a general sentence for multiple counts would have been treated at common law, is it? That, that's basically our point, Your Honor, that for all intents and purposes, Mississippi treats consecutive sentences, administers them as a general sentence uh, in which... Uh, uh, well, the practical effect is if the marijuana conviction were set aside... He, the petitioner would be entitled to an earlier release date from the remaining sentence, I gather. That's basically correct, Your Honor. He would be entitled, uh, he would be eligible for release on parole. At an earlier for, date. At an earlier date. If this were set aside. That's correct. Was the challenge to the marijuana conviction brought uh, during the period of time when the petitioner was still serving a sentence on the marijuana conviction? 
I, our argument, uh, Justice O'Connor, is that uh, Garland is being held under all of his convictions, including I know one. that. I'm asking whether the, his, his challenge to the marijuana conviction was brought at a time when he was still serving time on the marijuana conviction. And I would think that would be just a factual thing. Yes, he did, or no, he didn't. Looking at the marijuana sentence alone, Your Honor, no, he was not marking time on that sentence. When he first challenged it. When he first brought his federal petition, when he first went to federal court. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a matter of debate uh, in terms of when he first uh, uh, went into state court to exhaust his, uh, his state remedies. Of course, your position is that he was serving time on that because you can't separate the time on that from the time on the rest. That, that's precisely our position, that it's impossible to, uh, to parse the consecutive sentences that Mr. Garland is serving under, uh, and indeed inappropriate to do so because the state doesn't do so for any penological well, purposes. Sure, surely it's not literally impossible to parse. Maybe it's inappropriate, as you say, but one can tell a three-year sentence from a much longer sentence, I take it. I think that's right, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, make a slightly different point. I think the question whether Garland is marking time on the marijuana sentence uh, is somewhat separate from the question whether he's being held under the marijuana conviction. And uh, as I answered Justice O'Connor's question, looking at the marijuana sentence alone, he is not. He was not marking time on that conviction. That had expired by the time he. Well, the state insists that it expired at that point. Well, if it was a sentence for three years, one can tell simply by looking at state law, I suppose, whether or not it had expired. Looking at the sentence individually, that's correct. Yes. Um, but but you, have a, you have a different argument, as I understand it, uh, based on Peyton. You're saying the reason the sentences were amalgamated in Peyton in order to be able to, quote, anticipate, end of quote, uh, a sentence for purposes of habeas attack, was to satisfy the jurisdictional requirement that he be in custody. Well, if you can amalgamate in order to anticipate, then you've got to follow the same jurisdictional rule uh, when, in fact, you're looking backwards. So I think you have a separate argument saying you can't have patent for jurisdictional purposes and not allow me to attack, i.e., on the basis of custody for jurisdictional purposes. And that's a separate argument, isn't it? I mean, that's an argument based on Peyton, and you're saying you can't have it both ways. That's correct, Justice Souter. The principle that derives from Peyton is that a prisoner serving consecutive sentences is in custody under any one of those sentences for the balance of his confinement. Well, maybe it wasn't principle that was driving Peyton. Maybe it was uh, uh, a practicality that was driving Peyton. Uh, Why can't you say, you know, the law makes up these categories? There's there's no such thing as... uh, you know, whether it's separate or amalgamated, it, it's simply how, do you, how you choose to look at it. And we choose to look at it as amalgamated in patent in order that uh, you didn't have to wait a long time before you could try the factual matters uh, uh, necessary to determine the earlier incarceration. But, but in this case, that practicality cuts in precisely the opposite direction, doesn't it? Well, undoubtedly, there were practical considerations that motivated the court in patent those you described. Um, and uh, it is clear that the rule that we propose would uh, permit uh, Mr. Garlick to challenge his marijuana conviction uh, for as long as he remains in iron bar confinement in Mississippi, just as it would permit uh, another prisoner who's serving a life sentence uh, 
to challenge that life sentence for as long as he remains confined. Uh, but the, the practical considerations uh, that motivated the court uh, in Peyton led to uh, a principle in the case that obviously uh, spans beyond the narrow factual circumstances that the Peyton court confronted. And the principle is that the prisoner serving consecutive sentences is, for all intents and purposes, really serving a general sentence on multiple convictions and uh, can bring the petition to time. Is there any rhyme or reason to the sentence order, Mr. Boyle? The, I think the, the prosecutor said he was indifferent. The, that, that's correct, Justice Ginsburg. At, uh, at the sentencing hearing, the prosecutor expressed uh, total indifference to the order in which uh, Garlett would be required to serve his sentences, and for good reason. It doesn't matter uh, for purposes of uh, when he will for, — for purposes of the most important event for the state and the prisoner, which is when he might be released into the community, uh, the order in which those sentences appear in the commitment order uh, makes no difference. Is there a reason the judge might put the longer sentence first and the shorter sentence second, or the other way around? Uh, in this case, the shorter one first and the longer one second? No reason that occurs to me, except perhaps, uh, and I, we don't make this argument at all here, except perhaps to uh, foreclose uh, collateral review if we're, if we're wrong here. Uh, I think we've canvassed the cases pretty carefully in Mississippi, and uh, there's no, appears to be no rhyme or reason to uh, uh, the order of sentences such as we have here, a short, fixed period of confinement followed by a uh, consecutive life term. Uh, many cases you find that life sentences first to be followed by the, the, uh, the, the fixed terms of imprisonment. And in that instance, of course, the prisoner becomes eligible for parole, eligible for release, without having even begun serving the fixed terms of imprisonment that follow the consecutive sentences, or follow the, uh, the life terms. So uh, I think that provides a handy illustration of how consecutive sentences really do amount to a general sentence. May, may I ask, you've been very careful each time to say he's eligible for parole uh, earlier if the shorter sentence is set aside. Is it clear, what, what, what is Missouri, uh, Mississippi law on the following hypothesis? The, say there's no bail or anything pending appeal, uh, the person starts serving a sentence immediately and the short sentence is fully served before the appeal process is over and the appellate court sets aside the short sentence and leaves it in place the long sentence. Does he get a sh uh, an earlier release date then? He, my understanding of Mississippi law is that he would. Oh, it's not just eligibility for parole. He would, in fact, get the earlier. Uh, one of the other uh, features of consecutive sentences that we point out in our opening brief is that uh, time served or time marked under one of the consecutive sentences is really only provisionally credited against that sentence. If one of the sentences positioned earlier is invalidated uh, uh, for any reason, subject of a pardon, uh, the a later consecutive sentence sort of slides forward and the prisoner gets full credit. Uh, and that's another point we make about, uh, or another basis for our conclusion, that uh, consecutive sentences really do amount to a single general sentence upon multiple convictions. Um, Whereas if you had been sentenced uh, to that separately and then had been released and then committed another crime uh, and then later it was disclosed that you didn't actually commit the earlier crime, that's just tough luck. It wouldn't be credited against your later sentence. I think it's tough luck, and, and for this reason, uh, I don't think states are, want to be in the position of giving a prisoner an opportunity to bank time under an unconstitutional conviction they can apply against a, a, a future offense. Um, I've described Mississippi law, and 
uh, how Mississippi's position is on, on the custody question is inconsistent with the statutes that define Mr. Garlett's custody. But the uh, Mississippi's position is likewise inconsistent with its own actions in administering Mr. Garlett's sentences, and profoundly inconsistent. On the one hand, we're told that uh, Mr. Garlett's sentence expired and was supposedly beyond redetermination, beyond adjustment. Sometime between uh, 1988 and 1986, it's hard to tell. It depends on when you look at it. Uh, but in 1992, pursuant to recently enacted legislation, uh, the Mississippi Department of Corrections credited uh, a significant amount of earned time, uh, meritorious earned time, for Mr. Garlett's confinement. The net result was that his marijuana sentence was cut in half, and the Mississippi Department of Corrections credited the time that was freed up against the life sentences. Now, I don't know how that action can be reconciled with Mississippi's position here that the sentence is over and done with beyond adjustment. The critical point I'd like to make is that the credits that were awarded in 1992 uh, remain reversible. Uh, and uh, for as long as uh, Mr. Garland is in iron bar confinement, I think that illustrates how the marijuana conviction restrains Mr. Garlick uh, throughout the aggregate duration of his confinement. Why is that reversible? The, the uh, Mississippi uh, statutes, which are cited in the, uh, uh, or quoted in full in the appendix to our brief, uh, provide for the computation of earned time or commutation on the basis of the total period of confinement when a prisoner is under consecutive sentences. Um, and separate provisions of Mississippi uh, law so. provide for so forfeiture. If he misbehaves later, uh, the earned time that he, that he got earlier, which shortened his marijuana conviction, will be put back on the marijuana. That, that's right, Your Honor. For as long as he remains in prison, if he violates, uh, what, I can't remember the exact words, but if he commits a serious violation of prison rules uh, 20 years from now, the state, uh, under my reading of the Mississippi statutes, can withdraw that earned time. And uh, in that situation, of course, he will be deemed to have begun technically serving the life sentences a year and a half later. Uh, now, Mississippi uh, contends that the so-called discharge dates of each consecutive sentence must be, uh, even though they're irrelevant for penological purposes in Mississippi, they have to be treated as sacrosanct by federal courts in confronting a, a habeas challenge. Uh, I think that argument is the one that is foreclosed by Peyton, uh, quite clearly so. Uh, Virginia, in that case, tried to block a prisoner from challenging the uh, second of two sentences. I think there were 30 and 20-year sentences in that case. Um, on the ground, that he'd only been prison a few, in prison a few years and hadn't yet begun to serve uh, the second term. Uh, observing that the prisoner in that case had a single parole date under Virginia law. Uh, the court uh, held that he was, for all practical terms, serving a 50-year sentence, and it would be treated as such for habeas purposes. Uh, essentially, what the court held is that the, the sentence under which a prisoner is technically marking time uh, is that question, whether the prisoner is marking time under the challenge sentence, is a separate one from whether he is held or in custody under the conviction. And that's amplified by some of the Court's other decisions. Hensley v. Municipal Court, Estelle v. Darrow, and uh, Braden v. 30th Judicial District Court, which uh, permit a prisoner to challenge confinement uh, that he is scheduled to serve in another jurisdiction uh, before, that, before he's begun to serve that confinement. 
I think the theory is that uh, in, in that situation, the prisoner is not only being held by the first jurisdiction to discharge the first sentence, but he's also being held in anticipation of serving another sentence. Uh, Mr. Tiffey relies a great deal on Mullang versus Cook. Uh, submits that the issue has already really been decided uh, in Mullang. But all Mullang held was that a sentence or, or a conviction that no longer poses any present restraints on a prisoner uh, is, does not become a source of custody for purposes of federal habeas corpus simply because it's been used to enhance uh, a sentence upon a subsequent conviction. Uh, do you think it's fair to say, Mr. Boyle, that neither Malang nor Payton uh, cover the facts of this case, that one is on one side and one is on the other? I think that's, that's fair, Your Honor. The, the, the actual facts of Payton were such that the prisoner had not yet begun to serve uh, the, the, uh, uh, the sentence he was challenging. And the actual facts of Malang were that the, ser- the sentence had been served and was not affecting his present custody at all. That, that, that's correct, but the sentence at issue in that case was not imposed consecutively. There was no basis to conclude that the uh, earlier sentence that had been used, or earlier conviction that had been used to enhance the subsequent sentence was somehow aggregated or, or, or uh, combined into a single sentence by the jurisdiction for purposes of uh, such things as parole eligibility, uh, commutation, and so forth. Um, the only continuing influence of that prior conviction, in fact, was the prisoner's status as a felon, uh, which uh, was obviously influential to the sentencing judge on the subsequent conviction in, in uh, seeing the, the prisoner as a danger and thus enhancing the sentence. Uh, I think the principle that to be derived from Malang is that in that situation where a, a prior fully expired conviction is used to enhance a sentence for a subsequent offense, that the source of the prisoner's injury and the proper object of his habeas petition is that subsequent sentence, that subsequent conviction. And that's, in fact, what the Court held in that case. The Court found jurisdiction over the claims in the case, uh, but albeit uh, through the subsequent offense and subsequent sentence. Now, Mr. Boyle, I'm I'm concerned uh, about the practical effects of what you were just to do here, and that is about uh, um, opening up to to challenge very stale, uh, very stale convictions on the basis of evidence that's... uh, I mean, 20, 30, 40 years old. You're saying anyone who's serving uh, under consecutive sentences can now go back, even though he didn't uh, raise the challenge at the time, and challenge a, uh, uh, a sentence, a uh, two-, three-year sentence that he served at the very beginning of his incarceration. Why, why would we want to create that kind of problems for the state and federal courts if, we, if, if as you say, none of our decisions uh, squarely requires us to do that? I agree that, uh, Your Honor, the concerns about delay are legitimate concerns. I don't think they're present here. The State doesn't argue that uh, Mr. Garlett uh, uh, delayed uh, inexcusably uh, his his habeas petition here. Uh, And I think our position is that uh, the uh, jurisdictional scope of the statute, uh, which Congress delimited uh, in terms of confinement, in terms of custody, such that a a prisoner serving a life sentence could conceivably wait uh, 
40 years before bringing a habeas challenge. That's well, legitimate I, I, under statute. I, I take it, Mr. Boyle, Rule 9A mitigates that argument somewhat in that uh, petition can be dismissed if there's been uh, lack of diligence in filing the if the state, at least if the state can show prejudice, I believe, under that rule. Absolutely, uh, Your Honor. And uh, uh, so I would regard the jurisdictional question as ill-suited uh, to, to uh, uh, or the jurisdictional inquiry is ill-suited to try to deal with concerns about delay. It seems to me Rule 9A is, is a perfectly fitted remedy. I'd make another point, and that is that where you have a prisoner serving a, a continuous period of confinement under multiple convictions, uh, there is... There's no real incentive for the prisoner to delay uh, bringing, uh, bringing his habeas claims. Uh, each day that passes is potentially another day in unconstitutional confinement. Certainly the, the, the court in Peyton used the jurisdictional analysis to solve a practical concern, didn't it? Uh, that suggests that uh, the jurisdictional statute may not be regarded as like the 12 tablets, so to speak. I don't contend that uh, practical considerations are irrelevant here. Uh, but do, do you take the position that Peyton does not control? I think that, Justice Souter, the principle of Peyton does control this case, the principle being that a prisoner serving consecutive sentences is in custody under each conviction supporting the sentences throughout the aggregate duration of the confinement. So you are saying we cannot rule against you without overruling Peyton? Without overruling or modifying its principle. I think that's right. Uh, it, there are practical considerations uh, to point out uh, in Mississippi's position as well. Uh, I'll mention a few of them. Um, the first is that uh, uh, the rule shop in Mississippi would make uh, the availability of redress for constitutional claims turn in arbitrarily and capriciously on the order in which those sentences are positioned in the commitment order. And uh, for no real reason, uh, when the state concedes that the order in which they are to be served makes no difference for important penological events. But uh, I, I think you would have a hard time justifying your characterization of that as arbitrary, saying that you have to challenge a sentence uh, during the time which you're serving. Uh, now, your argument may be that, uh, that the statute permits that. Which, is, which I understand. But I, I don't think it's, I think it's hard to say that it's arbitrary if it doesn't permit it. To simply say you had a sentence for three years imposed upon you and you have to challenge it during the time that you're serving that sentence. Our threshold position, Mr. Chief Justice, is that each of the convictions supporting the consecutive sentences poses a present restraint throughout the duration of confinement. And uh, in light of that, uh, I think that permitting the availability of redress to turn on the order in which the sentences appear in the commitment order when that order makes no difference for purposes of, for penological purposes in Mississippi would, would indeed be arbitrary. Another effect of the rule uh, stop in Mississippi is that it would place a prisoner's constitutional claims at the mercy of the exhaustion process. Um, a prisoner who moved diligently to exhaust his state remedies uh, and uh, that w exhaustion process, for whatever reason, did not conclude prior to the technical expiration or the, the so-called discharge date of the first consecutive sentence would be foreclosed from habeas relief. Of course, that, uh, happens, that, that happens when, uh, when a prisoner hasn't gotten uh, any more than the one sentence as well. I mean, if he ends up and serves his three years and it's 
it takes more than three years for the habeas uh, proceedings to be completed, it's then too late to, uh, to get any habeas relief. He served his time. It's uh, water over the dam, and he can't challenge that conviction that, anymore. That's true, Your Honor. Uh, but here, Even of course— It has continuing future effect, at least uh, in, uh, for purposes of recidivism and, and so forth. But the difference here, Your Honor, is that the, uh, the marijuana conviction will pose uh, restraint on Mr. Garlett, will have custodial, real custodial effects on Mr. Garlett throughout the time he is confined in Mississippi in iron bar confinement. And uh, in that circumstance, uh, I think it's unfair to uh, leave those, the claims he may have against that conviction at the mercy of the exhaustion process. Final point uh, from, a, from a practical perspective um, is that it would, the rule stop in Mississippi would put courts in the sometimes confounding position of trying to figure out, trying to parse consecutive sentences, trying to figure out when uh, confinement ends under one and begins under another. Uh, this case is a perfect example where uh, the technical discharge date of Mr. Garlett's marijuana conviction uh, swung wildly from 88 to 86, may swing back again. Um, there's no reason to take on that burden when the state doesn't do so for purposes of administering its penal system and when uh, nothing of importance penologically turns on those technical discharge dates. It'd be it will be applied in states other than Mississippi. Uh, I mean, I suppose you're going to have some variations, uh, maybe 50 variations. There, there may be some, Mr. Chief Justice, and uh, there may, those variations may have significance for purposes of the federal question. Uh, but my understanding of Mississippi's rules is that these are, the, these are the customary rules under which consecutive sentences are administered for good reason. The state doesn't want to risk having a prisoner paroled on the first conviction and sentence before he begins to serve another conviction and sentence. The state doesn't want to put itself in the position of having a prisoner released because the first sentence is invalidated or pardoned uh, pending the service of other sentences. It wants a continuous period of confinement. And so uh, I think the... I'm not sure why that, that, why, why that would happen. If he's, let, let's assume that in this case uh, the marijuana conviction was set aside. Why wouldn't he just be automatically held under any sensible procedure for the next consecutive sentence? Or am uh, I missing something? Under consecutive sentences, he would, uh, Justice Kennedy, and that's because the uh, commencement date for each subsequent consecutive sentence is a, is a function of the termination date of the prior. Uh, if the sentences were truly separate, if they were... Uh, if they each had separate, fixed beginning and end dates, you could imagine a situation in which a prisoner would be uh, eligible for parole, might get parole, uh, be in the community before he was called to serve the subsequent sentences. Oh, I see. Okay. So there, the state sees real advantages in aggregating, amalgamating uh, consecutive sentences and treating them as a general sentence. And uh, our submission is that uh, given that election, uh, Mississippi has to accept the consequences that turn on long periods of confinement. Uh, the state, uh, I don't think, should be permitted to resurrect uh, uh, artificial uh, discharge dates as a means of closing habeas review when those discharge dates have absolutely no meaning under the penal system. Um, if there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Boyle. Um, Mr. White, we'll hear from you. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the... Um, uh, two basic arguments here, and the argument that we are looking at is that the extension of Peyton versus Rao to this particular situation. Peyton was decided to take care of a specific situation. 
the overruling of McNally versus Hill, which had uh, set up a rule of prematurity in the bringing of a habeas petition for sentences to be served in the future. The circuits that have um, decided contrary to the Fifth Circuit uh, have grasped on the language found in the last paragraph of the opinion without any analysis of the reason for Peyton to be decided. Well, regardless of the reason, what happened in Peyton was that the court said you could aggregate the sentences and a habeas challenge would lie immediately, even to one that technically hadn't started to run yet. That's correct. And if you apply that principle here, then there is jurisdiction even though the marijuana conviction sentence has expired because it has an effect on the length of time the prisoner will actually serve on the second conviction. But that was not the basis of Peyton. Peyton was to... There were reasons given, but it nonetheless adopted a principle of aggregating them and letting the habeas challenge be brought. But the court repeatedly said for, for sentences to be served in the future, not in the past. I mean, we have a, a different fact. No, but Peyton was construing the statute, and it was construing the word custody in the statute, and it said that term is going to be construed on the theory of in for one sentence, in for all. And I don't see how that construction can vary depending on whether we are looking forward or whether we are looking backward. This isn't a question of just common law policy making that the court was going through here. It was going through statutory construction. And I don't know why we are not bound by it under the normal rules of stare decisis. Well, we contend that it's a totally different fact situation. And that it is the so you're saying that the same you're saying therefore I are implying that the same word in the same statute has radically different meanings depending on whether we look forward or whether we look back. Uh, absolutely, that's a tough road to hoe. Absolutely. Uh, Can you explain how we have that freedom? If if the sentence has already been served, he is not in custody on that sentence any longer. No, but, but you're you're it's, it's fine to say that, but you're in effect. Rejecting the premise of the question, and the question's premise is we've already construed custody to say all consecutive sentences are continuous to be regarded as one for purposes of what is custody under this statute. How do we have an option to say, in fact, we were, we were wrong, that only applies uh, when we are looking forward? That isn't what we held, and I don't see how, in principle, we could redefine the, the, the identical term in the two circumstances. Well, I, I don't, and of course, I don't read Peyton that broadly as, as being the answer to the whole question. I mean, it, it, in the last no, paragraph, hey, I not, think... Not broadly, but the Court did not say... For, for purposes of looking forward, statutes are continuous, sentences are continuous. It said sentences are continuous, period. In that last Therefore, paragraph. Therefore, we can look forward. In the last paragraph, every other time it mentions about in the future. Well, in it, the future. It, it, in the it, future. It went through the, I just skimmed Peyton again. I mean, Peyton has sort of two parts in a way. It has a policy, it has a, well, three parts, I guess. It has a historical analysis, then it has a, a, a kind of policy analysis of considerations. Uh, and then in its concluding section, it draws uh, the, 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 the lesson that, the, that Mr. Boyle relies upon. Uh, and 
perfectly true. It says in the policy analysis we're worried about uh, the, the, the value or lack of value in looking ahead. But when it gets to construe the statute, it says custody means a continuity uh, of sentences. And, and it, I, I, don't, you, I don't see how we can hold your way without saying that the term is going to have different meanings depending on whether we look forward or look back. And there may be policy reasons for wishing it did. Uh, and, and they are in part addressed by, by the point that Justice Kennedy made. But uh, regardless of policy reasons for wishing it could, we're still faced with the fact that we've only got one word in one statute, and I don't see how it can have two meanings. Well, the policy considerations certainly weigh heavily in this case, because uh, once this Court says that it can retroactively do so, somebody that has been, even with Justice Kennedy's concern, or, I mean, a comment about uh, Rule 9, uh, this does not mean that these people can't, can't raise these claims that are 40 years old. Uh, the, you know, even the case in well, the, it, the, it the does, question that's it, it does, but your, your argument suggests that there is somehow an inducement uh, for their delay. And I don't see that because I don't see why the inducement is, like, is not likely to work against them. I would suppose the inducement would be, if they really have a claim, uh, to get it out and get it litigated. If well, they don't have a claim, they're not going to be any better off 40 years later. Well, this, this, very claim, this very petitioner belies this whole argument about not delay, of, of the lack of de- delay that they make, saying that everybody's going to rush in and file their habeas as quick as they can. His state court remedies were exhausted on the two consecutive murder convictions that he's serving now. In 1992, he has yet to file a habeas claim on those cases. And this is, this is not something that we don't see every day. In, in dealing with habeas cases, they wait 10, 15 years. Well, and you're all not of a sudden, contending he was lack diligence in filing this petition, are you? No, he filed this, this right. but he had already expired, his sentence had expired in this case. And, and of course, they say the, the petitioners are arguing that, that aggregate sentences don't make any difference under Mississippi law, that they're all amalgamated. Well, they're not. If uh, we only have to look at uh, page 54 of the joint appendix, to see uh, why, if, if they didn't make any difference, why would the state of Mississippi or the Department of Corrections produce something there that has a parole eligibility date and a discharge date on it? Well, his, point is, his point is that that's just a, just a, paper, uh, a paper distinction. What, what would happen if, uh, if he files promptly in habeas and the case goes all the way through uh, uh, state courts and it, it gets up to our court uh, three and a half years later? And because he's acquired a half year's worth of good time, um, three and a half years is, is one day later than his term expired. We'd have to dismiss the case. No, right. not under uh, uh, Coffee versus LaValle. I mean, if he filed it while he was in custody, he's, uh, then it, it oh, custody well, continues. Suppose he files it uh, three and a half years plus one day, all right? Then he's out. That's right. What if the good time that he's earned on his four-year sentence is later restored? It's later re- right. restored? He's still serving his sentence. He has this four-year sentence plus, uh, plus two life sentences afterwards. And he's gotten a half year's worth of good time credits on his four-year sentence. So he files his, uh, uh, his habeas action during that period that, 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 that's been eliminated. 
Oh, and, by, and, by, by virtue of, of his good time. And it's later taken away is what we're saying. And it's later restored. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, the good time credits uh, uh, are, are later yeah. eliminated. Does, does uh, it retroactively no. become a, a, uh, a timely habeas petition? No, and I, and it and doesn't. Why not? He's served, he's served four years on it. He filed it within, within the four-year period. I was not saying no to your question there. Oh. I, I'm saying that retroactively we don't take away good time as a matter of, of policy. Oh, just, that's, there, statute of course, there's been, no, there's been no evidentiary hearing in this, this case to bring out the these ifs, ands, and buts in the, in, the, in the interpretation of the statute and the application there. But that, that doesn't happen. I, you know, the, the, hundred, the time that he has, good time on this, will not be taken away from him. It is, it is permissible for that to happen, isn't it, during it, his entire term of incarceration? Uh, under, the, under the statute, but the practice and uh, procedures right now that are in effect and the um, – and every decision of our Supreme Court has said that any benefit, and that's why it's been refigured, is well, that the benefit goes to the statute government. differently so that what you do is, in fact, what you only what you can do, then we'd have a different case. We might have a case where we don't have one uni- unitary sentence, as, as counsel for the, uh, uh, for the petitioner is saying. Well, our Supreme Court has held that they're not unitary, though. Well, but your Supreme Court has not held that you can't take away good time credits previously uh, given. You can. <clears throat> you just tell me you don't do it. Well, the fact that you don't do it doesn't establish what kind of a sentence you have. It's just, it's just a practice. I'm, well, I'm troubled by, by, by the fact that this thing can be filed in a manner that's declared to be untimely, and then retroactively uh, it, it, it can be rendered timely. You tell me, well, we don't do it. Well, that's, that's nice of you, but, but it doesn't fit with the theory of the case, it seems to me. Well, the, the point being that if it, it at some later point... It did. I, I think that that, you know, he could then file. I mean, it, would, it could be timely. Uh, but at the time, if, if we have a situation where this is not, uh, his sentence has expired, and uh, the, just as the discharge date in this case, uh, it, it, is, it is passed. It was long past. Could he say thanks, but no thanks to the good time, because I want to challenge the sentence. If I don't get the good time, my time, I'll still be under the first sentence. It is credited that well, there are two there are two types. There's earned good time and meritorious good time. They're 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 two two different animals. They get confused now. When you enter in on a sentence, you are given credit. As of 1992, you're given credit for half the sentence that you will serve or sentence to serve. And at any time during your sentence, parts of that can be taken away. You mean if you're sentenced to 10 years? And you start serving your sentence on March 1st, 1995. You, you are said to have a five-year sentence. That's right. <laughs> is, is, is there any rhyme or reason to, to do the order of these sentences? The prosecutor was indifferent. And, Peyton, we had an example of a shorter sentence second. And this one, the shorter sentence is first. Uh, certainly. It's, it's in this particular case, uh, if you're sentenced to a life sentence, you don't get that. Um, there are exceptions to the, the, to the half-time credit. He would have had no good time at this point uh, at all. He would not be uh, start receiving any good time or meritorious earned time until um, next month or, or June of, of this year. He would, he, you know, the 10 years on a life sentence is day for day without any reduction. 
And then if that, when that parole eligibility date is really reached for the murder conviction, then the uh, marijuana conviction would start to be served, and then he would be entitled to the uh, meritorious earned time or, or, and, and uh, statutory earned time. Good time. May I ask, as a matter of Mississippi law, uh, what is the, the condition that must be met in order to file a collateral attack in Mississippi? Is custody the standard there, too? Yes. And w- would that mean that, as a matter of Mississippi law, he would be too late to attack his sentences, or has that not been decided? Uh, well, of course, he timely filed it here um, within the three years. St- we have a three-year statute of limitations from the time that you enter a guilty plea or uh, that the time the, United- the state Supreme Court decides it's uh, the case on direct appeal. It's three-year statute of limitations regardless of the length of the sentence? Regardless. I see. And if you don't bring it within the three years, it's... It's uh, it's way you know you're, way. You're, there are some exceptions. There, I mean, there are exceptions to the statute, but uh, basically we have a three-year statute limitations. Well, if you were within one of the exceptions, would would you be able to 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 file after the three years if, after the first the short sentence had, had expired? In other words, you have a rule in Mississippi such as the one you're contending should apply in in federal federal court. That I mean, if he, if his time has been served, he. It's too, late it's, it's too late. late. He, it's too late. I mean, if he has a one-year sentence, uh, you know, and, right. and he serves that one-year sentence, he can't wait two more years to attack that collaterally, that, that one-year sentence. So the, the statute of limitations is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for the habeas petitioner to meet. If, even though he's within the three-year statute of limitations, if he's, if the... If his sentence has already expired, he can no longer challenge it in state collateral. That's, that's correct. So, um, you know, he, but there's no statute on on federal habeas. No, not yet. Um, and and of course, in in this particular uh, case, uh, the the state contends that we the aggregate sentences do make a difference. As I was. Uh, Explaining there that they the the order in which they're served, and and in this particular case, under petitioner's theory, that he would be able, basically, to challenge this marijuana conviction for the rest of his life, because in Mississippi, if you're sentenced to life, you're sentenced to life, while even though you are eligible for parole uh, in ten years and may get out of jail, under Mississippi law, you stay under a sentence of life for the rest of your life. And therefore, he would have been able to challenge this marijuana conviction until the day he died. Well, he, he's, he's able to challenge his life sentence conviction for the rest of his life. Well, that's true. Right? That's, that's correct. What's wrong with being able to challenge this other one for the rest of his life? If, indeed, the two are sort of mishmashed together he, and he's well, serving them all together. Well, they're, well, they're, the thing is, they're separate, the separate convictions for separate crimes. Uh, you know, I can understand a life sentence because of the, the collateral consequences of that that extend throughout the life of being basically, I think, technically in custody for the rest of your life, whether you're behind bars or not. Uh, and a marijuana conviction in this three-year sentence, uh, and you're saying because I'm in for this one, I get a free ride on this one. And whereas if a person... Or if this one put last. Or we you, put... You acknowledge if, if, if the short sentence were put after the life convictions, he would have been able to challenge that, that short sentence for his entire life both when he originally right. went in and later when he was serving it. Right. Yeah. 
but there, but there again is the reason we, we do that, is because we want that speedy resolution of that, those future sentences. So we don't wait for 40 years or 20 years or, uh, to, to determine these cases. And, uh, and that's, that's why, I mean, that's the, the state's position here, is that, uh, that this actually turns Peyton on its head. Uh, because it uh, invites delay, and not uh, in this case. And, and, you know, and as I say, in this very case, is an example of that, where he has not challenged his life sentences in federal court, although his state court remedies were exhausted in, on May the 2nd, 1992. Maybe he has no reason to challenge those life sentences, and his reason is only to challenge the mar- marijuana <coughs> sentence, as to which you're not making any claim of lack of diligence. The problem was he had to exhaust his state remedy. That's why he didn't get to federal court. Well, that happens every day, though, that people exhausting their their. There's no lack of diligence. You were making an argument that this this is an example of lack of diligence because he still hasn't challenged his murder convictions uh, on... No, that that was not the argument. I was making the argument that that this shows that in this... But this does not happen. Everybody's not going to rush in and file their habeas petition as soon as possible on every case. And uh, in, in the parallel case with this, the consecutive sentence has not happened yet. Uh, yet we're not saying that he did not uh, as soon as his, well, and he really didn't file this. He filed some more dilatory state pleadings instead of after a determination of the state post-conviction petition uh, by the Mississippi Supreme Court, he, he filed a second one a second petition in state court alleging the very same issues uh, that had just been denied um, and, instead of going on and filing his federal habeas. I mean, that, that's is, is quite often done. I mean, and, and that's, uh, I mean, it's not, it was not a long delay, about a year maybe, uh, that he took to, uh, to file his second almost identical petition in state court. But uh, this, you know, this... Uh, this delayed his time, and this was, you know, his choice to file this instead of going into federal court because he exhausted his issues in that first petition and basically re-exhausted them in the second petition and, uh, and wasted a year's time uh, filing a second petition in state court. Um, so, I mean, uh, I'm, and I don't even know if the, uh, thinking back now, I don't know whether the, um, if he had filed within that first time, he would have still been within his, uh, within the time that he was serving the marijuana uh, uh, conviction, but uh, but that that did happen. I mean, it, this this happens um, quite often, and um, so um, of course by looking at it this way, I think we 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 turn the um, ruling patent, uh, jurisdictional ruling patent, upside down when we say that you can go back and challenge sentences that are fully served. Even though there's an aggregate, they aggregate in the future, um, and and I think that that's uh, uh, certainly the way it should be viewed. Do, do you think that there is a way? Suppose suppose I, you thought just I'm just trying this on. I don't know if it, your reaction, but suppose you thought that Peyton or these other cases means yes, these tens are all smooshed together somehow. So, is is there still a difference uh, between? the period of time where the two sentences combined means that he has to be confined. In this case, that's 10 years and 10 months. Mm-hmm. And then the period of time after that. In other words, suppose 10 years and 10 months runs. 
As it will. As it will. And then that day comes. Mm -hmm. And then he isn't released. It's not going to be. Under the present Now, now, what I wonder is, after that day comes and goes, then, if he wanted to challenge that first sentence, intuitively that seems much more like the case where a person's been out for a while and at worst what happens is that that earlier sentence is sort of taken into account as an aggravating factor in his life that stops parole. Whereas before that 10 years and 10 months runs, it seems much more like that, that earlier sentence is having a, an active effect at forcing him be, to be confined for an additional 10 months. Now, I don't know if there's, an, if there, if there's a, a way conceptually of, of, of taking that into account or, or not. That's why I'm, I'm wondering what your view is. Under petitioner's theory, is that he is still will be on parole for the marijuana sentence at the same time he is on parole for the murders. Yeah, yeah, I know that. That's, that's what. And, and that, and, and so therefore he contends that that collateral consequence of being on parole uh, extends uh, whether it's ten or fifteen or twenty years before uh, Mr. Galat is is uh, released from custody. I mean, it's uh, uh, presently the set off is on the first time of. Uh, Eligibility pros are from three to five years right now, and that's why I wanted to know what you thought. What do you think about that? I mean, is 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 there uh, some distinction possible there, or 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 not? Of course, our argument is is that when he served that time, that he was required to on the marijuana right. conviction, and we have a in in the penitentiary records, we have a parole, earliest parole date and earliest and, and discharge date. I mean, in the records there that, that are presented to the inmate, and the, there is a mistake in the one here, as, as we pointed out in the footnote, and as Mr. Uh, Galat uh, points out to the court in his petition for research area on page 9 and 10. I mean, he realizes that this, this paper, because of a clerical error, is in, in error. And he's actually uh, not to be released until some two months later than they have uh, listed there. Uh, his earliest parole date is not uh, listed because of a, a clerical error in applying this. Yes, yes, but I, I mean, if you lost on your basics theory, you'd still prefer that he lose his right to challenge the initial conviction once the 10 years and 10 months comes to pass. Oh, absolutely. And so I wondered if there, if you've thought of, you might probably haven't thought about it, I haven't thought it through, but if there is some way conceptually that that, that, that would work, I mean, I see an intuitive Difference, and I'm not sure if it works out in the context of the cases. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, you know, there's there's a way to do that. Of course, we we uh, would rather I have the whole loaf than half uh, in in this situation. Um, and and our concern too is that the is is um, is this going to be uh, retroactively applied to to all habeas petitioners? I mean that uh, I mean even with in the face of Rule Nine. Uh, it's going to create uh, could create a tremendous workload on our on our office and have to answer all these things. I mean, it's there's one thing to assert jurisdiction and say the court has no jurisdiction, and a total uh, a, a totally different one to to have to go into a rule nine situation where you may have to answer the total thing and try to find and, and do an extensive search for records and and transcripts and things like this that may be very very old or may not not even be extant. Uh, so uh, you know when when you have a jurisdictional Bar, you're on a much more solid ground than you are on a Rule 9 bar uh, in, a, in a habeas situation. So, General White, have you, have you finished your argument? Because I wanted to ask you one question yes. not directly related to the case. I'm just curious because you've had a good deal of experience in these cases. 
Do you think the general exhaustion rule is a sound rule? Um, yes, I think, I think it is. I think, I think the state court should have first crack at it, and I think that um, you think that outweighs the, the delay that it causes is the question that runs through my mind. Well, uh, you know, uh, if in our federal system, yes, I think, I think it outweighs uh, heavily the, the fact that the, that the state courts are, are catching most of these things, yeah. and, they're, and they're making uh, corrections in, the, in these cases and, and vacating. I know I, my court has um, uh, changed in the, in the 17 years I've been with the Attorney General's office, has changed uh, where it was a perfunctory denial on post-conviction reviews where they're very seriously considered, and, and many, many vacations of sentences are uh, you know, the, you don't you see opinions written in post-conviction cases where you didn't used to see that. There were many, many just uh, uh, perfunctory denials. Like Thank you very said. much. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. White. Mr. Boyle, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I'd like to make just a couple points. Uh, first, on the question whether it would be possible to parse consecutive sentences according to uh, whether the prisoner is marking time in those sentences. Uh, another thought occurred to me sitting down, and this is amplified in, in the briefs. In Mississippi, as I think in most states, the, the sentences are really discharged in, in dovetailed fashion so that when Mr. Garlett's date of initial parole eligibility comes around in March 1996, he will still have the balance of his life terms to serve as well as a, a parole term on the marijuana conviction. This is not idle imagination, uh, either one of the cases we cite, the Williams v. Puckett, describes a situation where a prisoner who was on probation committed a subsequent offense, uh, was sentenced upon that offense, and had his probation revoked. Uh, the order in which the Mississippi Department of Corrections considered those sentences satisfied was, first, the mandatory term on the revoked probation, second, the minimum parole term on, uh, actually, it was a non-parolable offense, armed robbery, that entire 10-year term next, and finally, the parole term on the original offense. So it's, it's uh, they really are uh, discharged in dovetailed fashion. Then also, also in response to Justice Breyer's question, which is an intriguing one, I think this case, of course, illustrates uh, the direct uh, restraint uh, that is posed uh, by Garlett's uh, marijuana conviction. But I think even beyond uh, the, the date of initial parole eligibility, like in year 15 or 20, the sentences still are treated as a general sentence. The earned time uh, that he has in his marijuana conviction is carried forward and can be forfeited at any point. And if the marijuana conviction is invalidated, he can get credit uh, for that uh, service on his life sentences, uh, even at that point. Uh, if there are no further questions, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Boyle. The case is submitted.